downloads of this show are available on Podomatic.com and the Podomatic mobile app. Coming up on Objection to the Rule, the Trump administration is in the news this week over a conversation with a Gold Star family of a soldier killed in Niger. We'll discuss the controversy and explore why people are up in arms. Plus, e-bikes are on the ray bar for de Blasio. Find out why he could put the brakes on this form of transportation in the city. And we're joined by the cast and filmmaker of the short film Black People Are Dangerous to explain their film's commentary on race in America. Objection to the Rule is live right now on Radio Free Brooklyn. Good afternoon, Radio Free Brooklyn. You're listening to Objection to the Rule live. I'm Ori Givens, joined in the studio by Rachel Cleary. Hey, Rachel. Hey. And we also have a special guest in the studio. Hi, Donaldo. What's, what's going on? How, How are you, you doing? doing? We're going to find out more about Donaldo and his short film, Black People Are Dangerous, coming up later in the show. I have to apologize for the little bit of dead air at the top of the hour. We're sorry for that. You know, technical difficulties, but we'll keep it rolling. So we got a whole lot of topics to talk about this week on Objection to the Rule. There's been a lot going on in the government. I want to start with the proposal for the tax overhaul with the Senate approving a budget resolution for the next fiscal year that could possibly overhaul taxes and maybe significantly lower taxes for the wealthy. Is that really what we're looking for? Are lower taxes for the wealthy? Is that is that where we should be going with tax reform? I'm curious to know what your thoughts are about not just the plan, but how we think we should be exploring changing taxes in our society. Rachel, what do you think? I, I feel like this is something I've been hearing throughout my life. Um, mm-hmm. This the whole it, it's you know ta- it's, should we be taxing you know cutting taxes for the rich? No, but it seems to happen that way. I think. Um, and it's, I think it's a little different now. There's, there's always been different schools of people coming from different economic schools of thought, mm-hmm. thinking, well, no, that we should, you know, implement or not implement taxes and say uh, this way here um, because it will have this desired effect on the economy. And someone else would argue, no, that, you know, that that's not how that should be done. And it, but it seems a little, it's, um, and those are almost like battling economic theorists, you mm-hmm. know, and which, which would actually work. Um, but I, I feel like now there's there's a different um, character to it. There's almost, um, I, I think, people as a whole recognize that there have been uh, our tax part of it's our tax system um, has created a a a, a socioeconomic uh, class of super super wealthy people. Yeah. Um, who and part of why they're able to hold on to so much of their wealth is they're not paying taxes, and and uh, people who are earning less are um, shouldering more of the tax burden. I th- I think, and it. it there seems to be this either you recognize that, hey, maybe we need to be contribute more, all of us personally, in order to, and, and I hate to say reap the benefit more, but mm-hmm. like, you know, we're, 
it kind of made everything more of a level playing field versus, you know, we're tr- it, it versus a thinking of that's not that it's like, why should I have to pay for you? It's almost, there, there's much more, it seems a little bit more polarized. Why do, why do I have to pay for anything? You know, someone else's, you know, healthcare. That's why do I have to pay for this? Why do, it seems a little, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't seem like, you know, battling economic theorists anymore. It seems that there's, there's a sharper divide. And I, I don't think the plan I mean, personally makes a whole lot of sense. I mean, I, I like the, the idea of um, more you pay, uh, more you earn, more you pay in taxes, but I don't know how that's going to say affect the, the the very super super wealthy, the, the Koch brothers. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think they should be paying people who have that kind of wealth. Well, and this know? is all in the context of you know getting a set budget for the next fiscal year. And as you know, you know, a budget is about what money is coming in and what money is going out. So if there's going to be any reduction of taxes, then we have to look out how much money is that going to take away from our revenues. What things are going to get cut you know, because mm-hmm. of that deficit or if there's going to be a deficit. Now, there's not been an analysis um, from the Congressional Budget Office to tell us what the impact of right. these plans could be. But, you know, we know that marginalized communities typically lose out when there's going to be a deficit or when there's going to be a reduction right. in right. revenues. And we, we typically know, you know, we know that there are some targets right now, you know, as far as reproductive health, for instance. Yes. And some of these things that, you know, do cost money, but they're services that we need. Right. And it's that's also, um, it's costing you money, but what is the economic cost if you don't provide that also? Exactly. It's some of these like, hey, we can afford to tax cut taxes over here. Well, should we really be cutting taxes though? If we could, I, I think sometimes we really, we got to kind of move the money around. It's kind of like, oh, if we can say, spend less on this thing over here, but that means we can funnel more money into say services that people really need. Mm-hmm. Um, like certain, certain communities that are, you know, just, there are certain basic, you know, quality of life issues. You know, it's it's if if you find you have a surplus of money, I don't think the first thing you should do would be okay. Let's cut the taxes. Then uh-huh. you you might want to sh- like funnel that into a program or providing certain services in communities and places and parts of the country where they're in dire need of that. There are places, you know, and and especially when we in the wake of like these three major hurricanes, right. Um, well, causing you know, millions sorry. in damages. If you if you find you have some extra funding, it, it, don't cut the taxes. Hey, I'll I'll pay the taxes so that the roads get rebuilt mm-hmm. in Florida we and in Texas the, the and in Puerto Rico. Yeah. You know, we get they yeah. get power back. You right. know, after a month, uh, power. <laughs> you know? exactly. I think it's really you know as we have these discussions about budget, it's always kind of been one of those Republican mantras to cut taxes, cut taxes, <laughs> but cut taxes how and to what end? And I really feel like we have to look at how can we streamline our taxation policies because as you know as a taxpayer I don't mind paying for people to have health care right. or for us to have nice roads or for us to you know rebuild Puerto Rico but there are people that are concerned right. about paying out that money you know I I can't say right or wrong what they think but we have to look at what our collective society wants out of our government what we want it to do and what services we want to want it to perform right and i think that's that's one of those things where where i think and i think a lot of it had to do with this last election cycle where we had someone who is a self-proclaimed democratic socialist and Mm -hmm. you know was out there talking very loudly about hey here's a different perspective on taxes and and monies like Mm -hmm. hey you know hey if if everyone pays a little bit more in taxes are we provide health care but that's more money in our it levels out. He was kind of, we have this, this is in the public consciousness now, this idea of like, oh, wait a second, maybe, you know, taxes, 
are they're not such a bad thing if we see if we see it actually helping people i don't i think a lot of frustrations come from people who maybe are paying a lot in say property taxes or local income taxes in places where their garbage isn't getting picked up properly like basic quality mm-hmm. you know there's potholes everywhere they get you know they're not see i'm paying taxes but Look at what it's like mm-hmm. in my neighborhood or my town. And I think that's Absolutely. where a lot of that frustration comes and in. And we're still so early. We really don't have very many details about what this is all going to look like. And it obviously has to go through a whole bunch of vetting. Um, there's going to be a version of the house, a version that goes through the house, a version that goes to the Senate. Eventually they'll kind of get mashed together and then we'll see some sort of, of budget that comes out of that. Um, I'm curious, Violet, what you thought about the proposals and what you thought of some of the analysis. It sounds like a lot of, more of the same, you know. It's uh, it's the same people who are uh, who feel they don't have a responsibility to the whole. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, and unfortunately, they're writing the tax code now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And we've got you know we've got the same people in the Senate and the House. Uh, so we're, it looks like they're going to approve and push mm-hmm. it through, and then the executive is just going to help that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. And that's that's kind of the worry since there is no, you know, there's not a Democratic majority in the House or the Senate. Not that, you know, we can't assume that the Democrats would come out with a better bill, but right. we can, you know, say that there will probably be more universalized ideals that would come through. It wouldn't benefit one group or another. And it, you know, possibly could save some of these services that are on the radar for chopping. Right. Let's transition. Let's talk a little bit about, we keep on talking about North Korea. And, and it's... <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but it's just become this point where it's like every week there is a new threat from one side or the other. This week, North Korea has ratcheted up its threats. Uh, The North Korean news agency released a statement saying that the U.S., quote, should expect that it would face an unimaginable strike at an unimaginable time. And also um, said that Trump himself could be a target for nuclear welfare or weaponry, nuclear warfare. That's the word. So. First of all, if, if Trump is a target, that, that's a lot more, you know, you can't really pinpoint people with nuclear warheads. You can't, you can't, it wouldn't just be one person. Right. Um, should we worry about these threats? You know, these, it's been a tit for tat, you know, words going back and forth for several months now. Um, I'm curious what you, you asked this question, you know, like, should we worry? Right. Should we worry? <laughs> Right. I mean, I think it's interesting right now that Trump, this is ahead of Trump's trip to Asia, where he may or may not visit the demilitarized zone Mm -hmm. between North and South Korea. And we've sort of got mixed feedback from South Korea about whether they actually want him to do that at this time. Right. So it it seems almost novelistic, right? Like Mm -hmm. Trump is going there. Uh, Trump has received a direct threat from the leaders of North Korea saying, you are our target. So Mm -hmm. what will happen? I'm curious. What do you think? Just from everything I've listened to as far as when it comes to this conversation of of North Korea, it sounds like uh, they're, for them, it's more of a, they're not going to, I don't know, I keep hearing this thing about like they just want a seat at the table. People keep talking about they want a seat at the table as far as uh, being respected now that they have nuclear weapons yeah Yeah. and if that is all they want um one i mean on the one hand i'm like well yeah let's just why not let's just let yes we will acknowledge Mm -hmm. if it's gonna stop all this like going back and forth because uh then sure yeah let's we'll acknowledge that you you two have a nuclear weapon and you can have that seat at the table 
that you've been wanting. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I do feel like if anything's going to happen, it seems like they got so much of their, their weaponry aimed at South Korea. Yeah. And it'll be there, there that they strike first. And it, it which, would really, it would, it, it would impact the Asia region, I think, a lot more than it would impact us. But that doesn't mm-hmm. rule out the fact that it could impact us. You know, we have a, we have a large military presence across Asia. We mm-hmm. have bases in the majority of those countries. And so, I would think that if something did happen and there was a strike in Asia, then that would push the United States to get involved, you know, and that that is where the fear comes in, I believe, because, you know, that all the the kind of talk about is this going to start World War Three? We hope not. But at the same time, you know, destabilizing that region could have a ripple effect. Mm hmm. Um, the latest I heard on this um, this morning on Meet the Press was, um, and, and, and see, normally I'd be like, you know, you know Kim Jong-un, he's, he's really, he's out. We, we know he's, he's, he's not well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> be nice, we'll put it that way. Do we, you know, do, do, do we want to, um, and the thing is that don't engage somebody like that. Like, are we, you know, I, but I don't, I think we might be too far past that. We might have to. And Jimmy Carter has offered to go to North Korea. Um, Jimmy, you know, several um, former presidents got together to actually make a joint statement about trump and you know the, the, this was it was a part of that and jimmy i think jimmy carter's um i think his intention in going over there would be to kind of smooth things over and calm yeah. everybody down mm-hmm. he kind of has that ability um to do that uh he in in making this statement about in where he offered to go to north korea um he he didn't exactly praise trump but he said a few things that weren't unkind and he, he actually suggests he said yes the mainstream media has actually been very very harsh on Donald Trump. Yeah, they have, but I mean, Trump does things that mm-hmm. maybe <laughs> results in in harsh in in some out, outstanding news stories because mm-hmm. I think he started it basically. But anyway, and I but I think you know that that I think that sounded a bit like Jimmy Carter going, okay, that you know. Trump is someone who wants to have his ego stroked a little bit. I'm going to do that right here. He's clearly mm-hmm. kind of got this. He's a diplomat. You know, he very much so. Yeah. But and I'm wondering, you know, but Jimmy Carter has offered to step in mm-hmm. and like go there, and you know, so I think at this point it may be it, it, it something that needs to be looked at and explored, like try and just go over there and smooth things over because we've got these two hotheads going at each other, and you know, it's not <laughs> but, the first. It's really you know, kind of an aside. It's really interesting that the five most recent living presidents mm-hmm. have are, are kind of unifying together yes. on many fronts. They made an appearance at a, at a benefit for, you know, and there it, it is interesting because as we know, typically former presidents don't speak out right. and involve themselves in the current affairs of the, the current administration. Um, and even, you know, former president Obama has been criticized because he hasn't spoken out mm-hmm. as much. Um, but it's kind of a, it's a courtesy that is given to right. the new administration um, that the, you know, you're not going to like armchair president. Um, but should they? Do we need more involvement from, you know, our former presidents to maybe say, hey, let's, I, I think it speaks guidance. volumes that the last two sitting Republican presidents are saying something because that I think the party yeah. has to take some responsibility for him. Um, but I just, I, you know, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy Carter could in theory go over there and never come back because it's North Korea, yeah. <laughs> you know. So I think it's it's saying something that maybe that he's willing to go over there and do this. Like, hey, even I think we need to we, we need to chill it out, pour an ice bucket on this situation, something, something. Let's talk. Yeah. Let's go to something a little bit less uh, tumultuous. 
de Blasio seems to want to crack down on electronic bicycles. And if you live in the city, then you've seen, you know, the delivery guys that are riding around on the bikes with the little motors. And I was always, when I first moved here, I was always confused, like, what's happening with these bikes? Like, why are they, like, and they have little motors and they go really fast and sometimes they get in your way, they might run you over while you're trying to cross the street. Um, and de Blasio is trying to crack down on them, saying that they are unsafe for the city, but it would have a really big effect on a lot of businesses. Um, Slate, Slate released an article um, talking about how this, you know, these bikes don't really cause a lot of the noise and emissions that other forms of transportation cause. And they do help people to make their deliveries faster, which is good for business. Um, and then also the result of a crackdown could mean that, you know, undocumented workers or immigrants are unfairly targeted because delivery drivers tend to be, you know, immigrants tend to be people of color, tend to be people um, from immigrant communities. And so what do you think about this idea of trying to eliminate these bikes? I feel like I've been doing all the talking, before, <laughs> but I, I looked at this up, but if you go ahead. No, sorry. Go ahead. Okay. No, I, th- I thought that I couldn't hear it anymore. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, I, I looked up, um, I, I was kind of curious about this because I read about this story and I'm someone who rides a bike around New York City and I use the bike right. lanes. Right. And um, I've been a little frustrated by these e-bikes mostly. And I think it, it's not the fact that someone's put a very quiet electric battery on a bike. I think it actually kind of boils down to cyclists, all mm-hmm. of us following the traffic laws oh yeah um and part of what's and the thing is these batteries it's kind of like driving a prius you won't hear it come down the street very mm-hmm. very right. quiet Towards so you in a one yeah lane. so yeah. if someone's coming up behind you on one of these things you will not n- hear them coming the way you would even if someone's just pedaling a bike because you'll hear their chain you, you're supposed to ring a bell mm-hmm. say something you're supposed to stop at red lights you're supposed to not ride on the sidewalk and i think that's part of the issue but i was kind of looking up the bike rules and lane rules and i found something very interesting that i didn't even know about um if you go to new york city um dot gov there's um the whole bike section and there's actually commercial biking is its own there's there are administrative codes around this um and a lot of this is in place for the 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 safety of the cyclist um they are actually they're you know if you even if you're just delivering food um, there are things like commercial cyclists um, safety posters that you have to hang up in your establishment, whether you're running a courier service or a restaurant, the same way you'd have any other like um, OSHA sort of yeah. thing up. So there's your safety things. Um, there is actually a form of um, there are certain things your your boss has to provide for you. Um, they're supposed to like, you know, things like um, reflective vests, um, safe, you know, helmets. Um, uh, they're the bike itself. They're supposed to re- uh, provide the bike. Um, and there's actually little ID cards that you can promote that the city provide that you give to um, your employer on the bike, your employee out on the bike, which I think could address the whole like, is this in kind of an image? Could this like, you know, be an immigrate an immigration crackdown? Because mm-hmm. if, if someone was pulled over on one of these bikes, they'll have this ID card that says what their name is, but also the employer, who it is you're working for, and they can be referred back there. And it's ultimately the re- employer's responsibility to provide a safe bike. So whoever, you know, this whole, it, it, in theory, it's it's the employers that are putting the batteries on the bikes then. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that that's, I think you have to address the people who are actually sending these guys out to deliver. But I, I, I think a lot of it's, it's um, if you want to, if, if you're concerned about safety, yeah, I've I've had some safety issues around these guys, and it has to do with the fact that they're just not they're driving them like cars, not mm-hmm. like bikes. And you know, well, they're not. I don't even but, necessarily they're driving them like cars. They're not following the same yeah, it's rules a safety, that cars yeah, would follow, right? Which bikes know? have to follow also? Yeah. But yeah, I didn't realize there's a whole administrative code uh, around you know delivery bike guys, 
and yeah. gals and you know and i think um maybe we have to like think about think about um enforcing the law already in yeah. place here i feel like you know you as a as a driver of a vehicle of a car you have to you know certify you have to get a license you have to show that you you know can operate that motor vehicle safely i don't know that you'd have to get that same license for these i know for a motorcycle you do but for these bikes with you know these little batteries these you don't have to do that um, just like you don't have to get a license for a bicycle in the same way to operate right. a bicycle, but they're operating on the roads. Should we look at these laws and maybe, maybe I don't know if we necessarily can force people to go through like a bike driving course or something, but should we evaluate how many bikes we have on the roads and, and how prepared people are to ride their bike in the city on the streets? I think maybe, maybe so. But I think uh, if anything, we should be, I think the bike is a, is or can be a better alternative to cars. Mm-hmm. You know, I think we have too many cars in the street. Mm-hmm. I, as a biker, I'm more concerned about cars mm-hmm. often not following, you know, directions. Right, right. Or yes, not to say that all lights. cars follow the laws either. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a car can do a lot more yeah. damage to mm-hmm. a cyclist right, than, than the, the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> I just think it's sort of coming out of nowhere from de Blasio. Like, I don't know why he's targeting bikes right now. I don't know why he's targeting this group right now. Uh, it's so close to the election, you know, mm-hmm. what, what does he stand to gain and what, what do we stand to gain from that? You yeah. Know? It, it did seem to kind of come out of left field and you wonder kind of who's in his ear right. about this issue. Yeah. And, and there is actually speaking of what you were just talking about, um, there is, and there are bicycle safety courses for commercial bikeless, bicyclists. Okay. This I didn't even know this was a thing. I just in yeah. researching this story because I was really curious about it. I discovered and and this is widely available information. NewYorkCity.gov, NYC.gov. You can look into all this, and it's I you it's know again this though, right? um it's 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 interesting. I feel like we already have this kind of written out the way it's supposed to be, and maybe it's just it's, right. it's no, followed. But it yeah. is a little funny that he suddenly decides to address this. Is he maybe concerned about employee safety? I would hope so, but I mean, but yeah, a lot of it's it's things like you know just. It, it, they need to. Um, they do go. They can go a bit faster than a, your average bicycle. I think it's a it's fu- it's a fine thing, but people just. I think what they need to do is like pull people over and ticket them when they're like right. doing things they shouldn't well, in traffic. Well, okay, or, this late article said that uh, e bikes are technically illegal in New York City. Okay, so that's oh. why there's not like okay. a system for enforcement there right now. They're legal in other cities like big cities, San Francisco. I saw in other like American cities, and then um, abroad, like I think the British version of Seamless uses them as part of their fleet of de- delivery vehicles. But we don't have an apparatus for like uh, you know like measuring their safety right now or uh-huh. enforcing it. And I, I don't know why he's not going towards the path of legalization and, and enforcement rather yeah. than just like crackdown. Yeah, make them safer, put some regulations in place mm-hmm. instead of just eliminating them right. where people wouldn't have alternatives. Right. Seems like a better option. Well, let's take a moment. We'll listen to some music and then we'll come back and talk about the Me Too campaign that has taken over social media and caused a lot of conversation about how we interact with others and how we discuss sexual assault uh, in the workplace and outside of it. We'll be right back on Objections to the Rule in just a few moments. Just for a minute. You and me on the hood of my car. Saturday night. 
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule live on Radio Free Brooklyn. So if you've opened up your Facebook or your Twitter feed or any social media this week, you've probably seen it. Hashtag me too. Hundreds of posts showing solidarity, showing affirmation, letting the world know that they're a part of this major group of people that have somehow experienced harassment, sexual violence in their lives. It's a movement that's for women to share their stories of harassment in public, and it's taken off and is getting stronger. It was started by an activist for women of color called named Tarana Burke, and it's spurred by a tweet from Melissa Milano from Charmed, one of my favorite shows. Um, Me Too opens up the space to talk about anything from street harassment to rape and other types of sexual violence. And most importantly, it doesn't require women to talk about it at all. All you have to say is Me Too, and it lets you know that you are a part of this movement. After dozens of women came forward um, and spoke publicly about Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein's history of sexual violence, this movement came to fruition, and it's to demonstrate how entrenched gender-based harassment is in our society and how little we think of it. And it's been very interesting to see all of the different responses. Some people have shared their cl- or their experiences. Some people have simply said, me too. We're going to play a little bit of a some responses from several senators who have also experienced some sort of sexual violence or sexual harassment. And we'll listen to that right now. When I started out uh, as North Dakota's attorney general, one of the most significant things I wanted to do was I wanted to change the dynamic of domestic violence. And I had an event when I was speaking, and it was a retired officer. I was talking about what happens to women and what happens when um, there's violence in, in the home. And after I got done, this very uh, uh, very much older law enforcement official came up to me, and he pretty much put his finger in my face, and he said, listen here. Men will always beat their wives, and you can't stop them. I was a very young state legislator, and in my 20s, and I was single, and I was nervous about getting my first bill out of committee. So I cautiously approached the dais and went up to speak uh, to the very powerful speaker of the Missouri House of Representatives. And I explained to him the bill I had, and did he have any advice for me on how I could get it out of committee? And he looked at me and he paused and he said, well, did you bring your knee pads? Usually it's the males who are uh, doing this to women. That They should know that this is not appreciated. Um, it's not cute. It's not fun. The first women who started the Me Too campaign you haven't left anything were incredibly brave. Male front. Male front. And they inspired yeah, they the next wave. Uh-huh. And in turn, they inspired the next wave and the next wave and the next wave. That's yeah, I'm very hungry, actually. So those were some responses from some senators, government officials, talking about their experience with sexual violence, sexual harassment in the workplace. The campaign originally started really pre-Twitter and Facebook, um, from an activist named Tarana Burke. And we're going to play a little bit of her reasoning on why she started Me Too, um, really to help support black women in the industry. You started this hashtag movement in 2006, and you focused on what you called empowerment through empathy. What do you mean by that? I mean, well, so Me Too started not as a hashtag. It started as a campaign of an organization that I founded, Just Be Inc., and empowerment through empathy was the thing that I felt that helped me 
which was that other survivors who empathized with my situation helped me to feel like I wasn't alone and gave me sort of entry into my healing journey. At first, your work focused on women of color, and it's now expanded. Tell me about how it's changed. Well, my focus in all the work that I do is for the most marginalized people. And so I worked with young women of color in the South. And then when we um, moved our work into like we had like a MySpace page and women started coming forward and talking to us and saying thank you for this. And we needed it. And we realized it had to expand some more than young people. And so we worked with young women, mostly black and brown women um, across, you know, through, through our MySpace page, but also throughout the South and then later in Philadelphia and New York. You know, we're hearing critics of this campaign say. So that was Tamara Burke talking about why she started the campaign, um, which, like we said, started before, you know, Facebook and Twitter. It started on MySpace, which I think is interesting to even hear right now. But, you know, we heard from women that, you know, this has been something that's been a part of their careers. And, you know, looking at Facebook, I've seen so many women I know that have used this hashtag and talk about their experience. I'm curious to know, um, first, you know, from Violet and Rachel, what was your response when you first saw the campaign? And what were your thoughts when, you know, this kind of blew up on social media? Well, I didn't realize how big it was at first. You know, I just saw uh, my friends posting it. And, you know, of course, I've also experienced forms of harassment. So I, I posted it myself and got certain responses from that. But uh, when I saw how big it was, I thought it was interesting, you know, because it uh, it's different things for different people. Like, uh, for some people, it's a platform to speak out and to speak their experience, which they may not have had before. But for others, it's just a way to speak in solidarity and to show how big it is. Um, yeah, I th- likewise, I didn't... It, it was like, wow, this is a bigger... It, it really... And not that... it. I didn't realize it was a huge problem, but it just how open, how many people were so open about it. Um, and I mean, we, if we include under the hashtag, you know, me too, it's just any form of sexual harassment. I mean, that, that was the thing too. It's like, I thought about it and I went, any, do I have any peers, anyone like who grew up at my age, grew up in New York city that didn't experience, I, we all experience street harassment. Mm-hmm. Um, I experience it less now, but more in certain neighborhoods, but it used to be, you just, and, and, yeah, and cat you realize how unacceptable it really is. I mean, I knew this, but it's just, it's like, it was very, it was a period of reflection for me. Cause it's like, you know, it's, how could no one have like jumped in back then and seeing like, and, and not young women, girls being street harassed. Like, the, you mm-hmm. know, have, you didn't know you like, I'm someone who would like, just say no you, you don't don't speak to those children mm-hmm. basically that way but um you know i i'm someone who used that hashtag um i you know i i was really impressed by um how many people came and people i knew um d- didn't just use it but told detailed stories about what happened to them and i, mm-hmm. I it, these are people maybe women are a little older than myself so i think they've just they might be at a point in their life and in healing in the process of recovering from everything that they're ready to share this but really intimate details about their lives that people were being open to talk about trying to stir empathy if that's if that was the goal i think that that was the intention i think that was reaching for me it was just kind of like wow this i mean i knew women i knew a lot of women that i know who are close to me have gone through this the details though were really i mean i i was weepy over for some women i've known for years i did not know they went through such horrifying things at young ages too some of them so um i think it's I think, you know, we're, we're, 
I, I'm really, if the intention was empathy, I think that it, it was successful, but I think, and it's really, I also noticed a lot of men um, using me too. Not men too, though. I know it was out there, but men I knew were saying me too. And, but they were just sort of saying, yeah, like I, I, I it, it's important to talk about this, but without hijacking it, like making it, oh no, yeah. it's not just about women. But I, I was very pleased and I wasn't pleased to see that so many men that I know and care about were victims also, but I, I was pleased to see like, Hey, we're, we're, we're not, we're going to ignore the whole boys don't cry thing. We're, we're going to, mm-hmm. men were opening up and talking about it. And I'm like that this, if this helps men to get, cause the, you know, we talk about things like toxic masculinity. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a woman. I'm not going to like jump into something I don't know about, but I feel like part of that is this whole thing where, where men are, you know, not allowed to express emotions or yeah, that's the expectation yeah. and everyone all of a sudden was able to express all of this and i think we've maybe we're able to all help each other out a little bit in this it was it's, it's rough but it's raw but it yeah it spurred a lot of empathy i think what i think that was an interesting because there have been discussions about where was men's place in this campaign mm-hmm. you know both recognizing that many times oftentimes in these women's lives men were the aggressors Mm -hmm. and also recognizing that men can be victims too you can be a victim and an aggressor you can be just a victim you know it it doesn't necessarily say that you know men are always going to be out there you know and not all men but we talk about culture and we talk about toxic masculinity Mm -hmm. and we know that sometimes the silence or the you know the quiet support is just as damning as the comments or the jokes or you know there was a story about how Quentin Tarantino you know is saying that he knew about Harvey Weinstein's behavior I've I've heard from a lot of men who said you know I'm realizing now I may that I was complicit in this complicit yes 20 years ago I was complicit in something or or I crossed lines you know Mm. what you know maybe I made a statement I shouldn't have or Mm. I laughed at something in the at someone else's pain you know it's those seem like more minor things but that's a big thing if everyone takes a step back and goes wow I need to assess how I behave in certain things but yeah a lot of people have come forward and said yeah I didn't say anything and you know and I that think that's a big thing. <laughs> We're really like, you know, it, it, it lends more credibility to people who accuse, especially like big time people like Bill Cosby, yeah. Harvey Weinstein, these these powerful, rich and powerful and rich power in the entertainment industry. That's mm-hmm. its whole other thing. Um, when because people are it saying, is a world. yeah, it's a world and it's it, it gives much more credibility and credence to people who make accusations, which I think is a good thing if it's if they're honest accusations, you know. Donato, what did you see? I don't know. What did you experience kind of over the past week with this campaign? Did you have a lot of friends that said it? Did you kind of, what were your reactions? Yeah, yeah I've uh, definitely on the on the Facebook been seeing a lot of friends mm-hmm. uh, come forward and tell their stories. And then just yesterday I was listening to um, uh, the Represent podcast. They were they went into the the Harvey Weinstein thing and they were talking about the hashtag. And, and I know as I was seeing it, I kept thinking, all right, what next though? But mm-hmm. what's next? Because um, um, I think we're going to start to see, or at least I'm sure we are going to start to see people say, all right, so we've got, we've we're opened up, mm-hmm. we got the discussion going. All right, so now what's the next course of action? Because a lot of this stuff does need to get addressed. Mm-hmm. Uh, just just watching, um, and looking at all the stories. And seeing the hashtag and hearing and reading the stories, um, I was thinking to myself, 
you know, all the times, you know, it's just the fellas hanging out, conversating at work, whatnot. Um, and the types of, uh, you know, there's that whole thing like around when, when, when the Trump thing came out, everyone was like, oh, locker room talk kind mm-hmm. of thing. As opposed to um, when it, you know, because there are those times when you are just, you know, hanging with the, I mean, everyone does it. Mm-hmm. You're just, you know, shooting the shit, whatnot. But then there comes that moment of um, addressing it. Because I, I, too, have been in conversations with people where I, with dudes where I can tell they just, their views on on just, like, as far as, like, saying something very sexist mm. or very misogynist. And everyone kind of does this thing of, like, uh-huh, you know, you kind of, like, don't want to point it out. Mm. And hopefully, you know, just to start things off, we can get more people just, like, holding themselves accountable or just holding their friends accountable as far as um, from the, from what the, more of what men can do. And that's it. You know, it's a good point. It's a, we you know, I, I when we were talking about this, how this is a is a cultural problem. And, you know, just like I feel like racism, you know, in my opinion, racism is something that has to be fixed by white people. I feel like misogyny and and mistreatment of women is is, is something that's squarely in the place of men to fix a lot of times because many times we're the perpetrators, whether it's directly or indirectly. Um, but I think culturally also there is talking about it and bringing it out in the open and having things like this where people are empowered to share their stories. We have to now listen and we have to absorb and we have to act. And I am curious like you, what is this going to change? Because Harvey Weinstein wasn't the only person. No. Bill Cosby wasn't the only person. You know, these stories are if, even if they get to the surface and they get visible you know there are so many that don't you know so i you know i'm hoping that we are at a place where now it's like well you know we have this my friends have the saying you know the skirt's been lifted up which is kind of a funny saying in this context <laughs> um now that i say it but you know it means you know we we now with it's been exposed things have been exposed and you know what do you think we can do to help change this toxic culture that perpetuates this violence i think i think part of um something i've talked about with friends is um i remember i mean i don't know about for you guys but like just in high school or middle school Mm -hmm. as far as um when it when it came to like health class or classes on sex or whatnot i'm not sure why it's not mandatory that like for every young person there's like this like just spend a week on just like how to behave and how to conduct oneself and how to treat people with respect. I um, feel like that's but, something. Go ahead, Rachel. Yeah, when, when we think, um, you know, think about I, I, someone, I saw this online as a suggestion that, you know, they should be teaching things like boundaries in kindergarten. Someone else came back with parents should teach that in schools should reinforce it. But remember that, you know, the saying of everything I need to learn to know in life I learned in kindergarten. When we look at, but look, in preschool and these really young formative grades mm-hmm. where we are learning things like turn-taking, mm-hmm. please and thank you, certain social graces yeah. and things like that, we also need to learn some boundaries like when it's okay to touch and or even things like, hey, ask, can I give you a hug? Like, it can mm-hmm. start, and it we're not to sexualize it at all, but at a young age, it's like, okay, what what's an acceptable boundary? You know, like not going through your friend's backpack. You know, we, we teach, and that, I mean, it should begin at home, but the schools can reinforce that. That is something we can learn in school. You get more into, should be more sophisticated. Yeah, I think health yeah. class in high school, especially because by then you have the raging hormones and people right. are, you know, they're becoming more, they're becoming young adults, but we can start very young and we can start with creating a culture in, in schools where children spend so much of their day of, you know, it's okay to talk. 
uh, and this is how we do it without you know I, if, you're, if you're upset verbalize it and it's okay for the boys and the girls to do that and we don't make fun of each other if we cry and we don't you know they create these cultures of you know verbalizing how we're feeling i know um i have a little nephew who's um in first grade and he lives in new jersey and i just might saw him yesterday and his dad my brother said that there's actually it's it's falling under the guise of um these anti-bullying programs but they're teaching these kids to really verbalize their emotions a lot and but we can apply that to just boundaries in general I mean, bullying has to do with control and things like that and they're all tied in but we can start very young by including that if we can include turn taking um please and thank you being good to your your fellow classmate we can try to teach some boundaries at a young age absolutely um any final thoughts it was it it was a shocking campaign and i think that I, you know, one of my favorite sayings is, you know, when we know better, we do better. And now we can't say that we don't know. Like if you, if you've been in front of any screen, you know, you can't say that you don't know. And now it's about how do we implement this knowledge into action? And hopefully we'll see that, you know, coming soon. So coming up after this short break, we're going to talk to some people involved with a very interesting film that debuted at the Bushwick Film Festival, um, tackling race in a very interesting way. And we'll hear from People involved with Black People Are Dangerous coming up next on Objection to the Rule. I gotta hear me. Damn.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, live on Radio Free Brooklyn. So, an interesting film debuted at the Bushwick Film Festival this week, and it took a look at you know one of the topics that is very central to what we talk about, which is race and our biases around race. And so this film gives a look, it's a short film that kind of gives a look at how these biases perpetuate. And now I'll let the people that made it talk about it. We're joined in the studio by Donato Prescott, who's been joining us all hour. And we also have actors Frank Hartz and Isabella Mihill on the line. Um, they're all from the short film, Black People Are Dangerous. Everyone, thank you so much for joining us on Objection to the Rule. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Frank, Leo, yeah, are you there? <laughs> yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, nice. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. So, Donato, first, give us a little brief synopsis of the film um, and, and what Black People or Dangerous is. Uh, it is a short film, 13 minutes. Uh, it is about a hitchhiker who catches a ride with a black man. It's backwoods, um, California. Um, they hear on the radio that there's a cannibal serial killer on the loose, and the hitchhiker starts assuming that the, the man that picked her up is that killer. And she starts making general assumptions. And then they start to have a conversation about race. And, and you know, he his rebuttal is like, well, most serial killers are white. Mm-hmm. Uh, then they get into the whole race discussion. And I don't want to give away the ending, but, it you know, it has an open ending. Um, but, yeah, that would be the synopsis. It was... Uh, well, no, I'll, well, I'll I'm curious, why did yeah. you, you know, why did you choose to tackle the subject of race and those racial biases in this film? Um, for me, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, I wrote this around the time when, you know, we were getting a lot of, you know, there was the, a lot of the shootings of the unarmed black man and just being black, there is this way that one, you know, society or just, the culture puts on you that there's a way you got to conduct yourself or you do walk around having people like put that on you where you feel like uh, you're made to feel like a threat before you even open your mouth. Mm-hmm. And the combination of, of just dealing with that, you know, from the time you're born and then a lot of what was going on, um, I thought it would be interesting to tackle that in a way that wasn't didactic. Mm-hmm. I don't like when, uh, when, when we do any social commentary when it gets too preachy. Yeah. Um, but I, I, I feel like this is a good way. I think when you can do a story like this in a way that not only entertains something that you could even laugh at, it could be more effective. Absolutely. Yeah. The film didn't really like, you could tell that they were going to get into these topics, but it really wasn't, it wasn't preachy. It wasn't about, you know, kind of beating you over the head with this viewpoint, you know, racism is bad. Um, but it, it kind of played out some really real ways that racism and bias, manifest um so on the phone isabella i'm curious and frank i want to ask you too what was it like to play these characters and to kind of tell this real world story in this way isabella you can go first uh yeah i mean when i read the script i loved it but i also was cringing at all of the lines that i was gonna have <laughs> yeah. to say as carla you do have some cringeworthy um, <laughs> lines for sure yeah and even just watching the film with an audience like there were you know black and white people on either side of me and they were both hating Harla, but also kind of laughing at her and maybe sort of like, I, I don't know. I don't know if 
I don't know if laughing at her is the right word. I think that, like, the challenge with it, with playing this character, was making sure that Carla was likable because you likable enough that like people would be able to see themselves or see someone they know in her because if she was too sort of like aggressive with her ignorance and aggressive with her racism and all of that then people would just sort of put her in a box that's like oh I'm not like that person I don't have those biases this is just like someone who I can't really relate to but if she was in some ways a little bit likable in some ways a little bit relatable then I think it made the film that much more challenging to watch because while you cringe at the shit she says, mm-hmm. you also feel like, ooh, I know someone who's like that. Um, and I think that that was sort of the balance I had to strike working with Donaldo. And um, it was a lot of fun. It was hard, but it was a lot of fun. Frank, what about you? What was it like to play this character? And kind of, you know, if the people haven't seen the movie, but it, it kind of, there's a shift in, in kind of the dynamics, which I think is really interesting. So talk about your experience playing it and, and what you were feeling. Yeah, man, I, I think that um, one of the most interesting things about this uh, script for me, um, other than the fact that, um, you know, Donaldo and I go a little ways back and it's exciting to work together, was that for me it was just interesting to observe uh, where we've landed since, you know, this, you know, Emancipation Proclamation back in 1863, mm-hmm. when, you know, the three million or so slaves were released into to so-called freedom. And we follow them uh, all the way through, you know, so-called middle class um, and the emergence of rich blacks in America, only to still have um, the the, the uh, overseers and the uh, so-called uh, plantation owners now sometimes wearing the uh, the, the the uniform, um, and uh, and as a result, uh, killing black men in the streets and. I just found it interesting to to see some of those parallels and similarities in the way that uh, characters like Is- Isabel's uh, character uh, sort of saw the world, um, because um, you know, as we see a lot of times with these uh, shootings and this profiling that happens, um, you know, these are so-called good people that that go wrong many times, and um, I think what we're seeing now is um, you know a situation where the most powerful black man in America, President Obama, is now being pulled over and stopped and frisked uh, ever since November. Yeah. And I just, you know, it's it just it was interesting to me to see how a character like um, uh, mine and black people are dangerous dealt with, um, um, you know, situations like this in such a subtle fashion. I mean, at any moment he could have, uh, you know, become the, the monster that... Uh, you know, uh, many uh, wanted him to become possibly, but he, he didn't. He sort of uh, handled it with, you know, grace and dignity and, um, uh, you know, stated his case. And um, the problem we're seeing now in the fake news era is that uh, you can state your case all day long. It may work on a car on the side of the road in California, but it doesn't uh, seem to work so much in the halls of uh, Congress uh, when, when no one is listening and we don't have the power. So hopefully come November and, you know, 20, uh, 2020 we'll be able to get some of that back but um, I guess I'm sort of you know going on and on from a couple of different angles because there's so much happening and, and wrapped up in this film that it's hard to to, to, uh, to, to place my finger on it but I, there's something that I just think is uh, that is resonates and is relevant on so many levels and I'm still dissecting it and pulling it apart myself but I think Donaldo did a great job um, <laughs> with the first step of examination 
But I think yeah. that's such an interesting because what one of the things that I took away from it is just like how many of those you know things that that Carlos said, for instance, were were real things that people say. Yeah. Like these are real things that people say. <laughs> and you know, I've know you know as a black man myself, I've experienced some of these things. These you know these casual racism or microaggressions or whatever you want to call them. That you know, it's not like somebody is you know holding a noose to be dramatic, but right. these are things that affect you, and you could see how it affected you know. Um, Frank's character in the movie you know you could see him he was not trying he didn't want to become that aggressive black man but right. you know when you're getting questioned and challenged you know that's kind of how it is and I, it well, really was interesting to see go ahead no I'm sorry I just did you mention the word did you say the word noose noose yes <laughs> right I, th- I thought so it, it, that, that word is interesting to me because I you know it, 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 I feel like the noose really never left the necks of black people in America yeah. Uh, you know, you know. Now you find it in the school boardrooms and the halls of Congress mm-hmm. and you know the streets of America. But you know, and this isn't for all black people. Some yeah. people were able to escape, but um, in some form, it always seems to 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 appear or, or reappear and, around and our necks, manifest and in different ways. Yeah, in this case, it was. And, um, and, you know, I don't know about yeah. you, but when I'm swinging uh, from a noose, I imagine my reactions to certain situations will be much different than if I were free, roaming around, walking without it. You know, uh, strangling me. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that that my character's reactions in the script, uh, with this so-called you know metaphorical noose around his neck, as a black man in America, is um, you know beyond honorable. The way that he reacted to the situation, he even got sliced in the film. Yo, shoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't want to get out of way. <laughs> that, 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 that Daniel Ma point, it just that little twist. It's all good. It's all good. So we are almost out of time. We only got forty-five seconds, but I want Donato to tell us where they can people can follow the film and where you can hopefully see it sometime soon. Yeah, right now we're still in submission world, so it's not public, so so to speak. Um, but folks can just follow me on, I think, the best way on Instagram, at Don Prescott. And they can go to our Seed and Spark page and just follow the film. And they can stay up to date with um, the festivals, screenings, and whatnot from there. All right. Thank you so much, Donato, Isabella, Frank. Thank you for joining Thanks, us. Hey, thank you to my host. And thank you all for listening to Objections to the Rule. We have What is Love coming up next live on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'll see you next week. All right. Thanks.